Chapter Forty Nine of In New England Fields and Woods by Roland E. Robinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A New England Woodpile. When the charitable mantle of the snow has covered the ugliness of the earth, as one looks towards the woodlands, he may see a distant dark speck emerge from the blue shadow of the woods and crawl slowly houseward. If born to the customs of this wintry land, he may guess at once what it is. If not, speculation, after little, gives way to certainty, when the indistinct atom grows into a team of quick-stepping horses, or deliberate oxen, hauling a sled-load of wood to the farmhouse. It is more than that. It is a part of the woods themselves, with much of their wildness clinging to it and with records, slight and fragmentary, yet legible, of the lives of trees and birds and beasts and men coming to our door. Before the sounds of the creaking sled and the answering creak of the snow are heard, one sees the regular puffs of the team's breath jetting out and climbing the cold air. The head and shoulders of the muffled driver then appears, as he sticks by narrow foothold to the hinder part of his sled, or trots behind it, beating his breast with his numb hands. Prone like a crawling band of scouts, endwise like battering rams, not upright with green banners waving, Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane to fight King Frost. As the wood pile grows at the farmhouse door in a huge windrow of sled-length wood, or an even wall of cordwood, so in the woods there widens a patch of uninterrupted daylight. Deep shade and barred and netted shadow turn to almost even whiteness, as the axe saps the foundations of summer homes of birds in the winter fastness of the squirrels and raccoons. Here are the tracks of sled and team, where they wound among rocks and stumps and over cradle knolls to make up a load, and there are those of the choppers by the stump where he stood to fell the tree, and along the great trough made by its fall. The snow is flecked with chips, dark or pale, according to their kind. Just as they alighted from their short flight, bark up or down, or barkless or edgewise, and with dry twigs and torn scraps of scattered moss. When the chopper comes to his work in the morning, he finds traces of nightly visitors to his white island, that have drifted to its shores out of the gray sea of woods. Here is the print of the hare's furry foot, where he came to nibble the twigs of poplar and birch that yesterday were switching the clouds, but have fallen, mana-like, from skyward to feed him. A fox has skirted its shadowy margin, then ventured to explore it, and in a thawy night a raccoon has waddled across it. The woodman is apt to kindle a fire, more for company than warmth, though he sits by to eat his cold dinner, casting the crumbs to the chickadees, which come fearlessly about him at times, blazing or smouldering by turns, as it is fed or starved. The fire humanizes the woods more than the man does. Now and then it draws to it a visitor, often as a fox hunter, who has lost his hound and stops for a moment to light his pipe at the embers, and to ask if his dog has been seen or heard. 
then he wades off through the snow and is presently swallowed out of sight by gray trees and blue shadows or the hound comes in search of his master or a lost trail he halts for an instant with a wistful look on his sorrowful face then disappears nosing his way into the maw of the woods if the wood is cut sled length which is a saving of time and also of chips which will now be made at the door and will serve to boil the tea kettle in summer instead of rotting to slow fertilization of the woodlot the chopper is one of the regular farm hands or a day man and helps load the sled when it comes if the wood is four foot he is a professional chopping by the cord and not likely to pile his cords too high or long nor so closely that the squirrels have much more trouble in making their way through them than over them and the man comes and goes according to his ambition to earn money in whichever capacity the chopper plies his axe he is pretty sure to bring no sentimentalism to his task he inherits the feeling that was held by the old pioneers toward trees who looked upon the noblest of them as only giant weeds encumbering the ground and best got rid of by the shortest means to him the tree is a foe worthy of no respect or mercy and he feels the triumph of a savage conqueror when it comes crashing down and he mounts the prostrate trunk to dismember it the more year marks encircling its heart the greater his victory to his ears its many tongues tell nothing or preach only heresy away with the old tree to the flames to give him his due he is a skilful executioner and will compel a tree to fall across any selected stump within its length if one could forget the tree it is a pretty sight to watch the easy swing of the axe and see how unerringly every blow goes to its mark knocking out chips of a span's breadth it does not look difficult nor like work but could you strike twice in a place or in half a day bring down a tree twice as thick as your body the wise farmer cuts for fuel only the dead and decaying trees in his woodlot leaving saplings and thrifty old trees to stand up and grow better as the yankee saying is there is a prosperous and hospitable look in a great woodpile at a farmhouse door logs with the moss of a hundred years on them breathing the odors of the woods have come to warm the inmates and all incomers the white smoke of these chimneys is spicy with a smell of seasoned hardwood and has a savor of roast and stews that makes one hungry if you take the back track on a trail of pitchy smoke it is sure to lead you to a squalid threshold with its starved heap of pine roots and half decayed wood thrown down carelessly beside it is a dull axe wielded as need requires with spiteful awkwardness by a slatternly woman or laboriously upheaved and let fall with uncertain stroke by a small boy the yankees who possess happy memories of the great open fires of old time are growing few but whittier has embalmed for all time in snowbound their comfort and cheer and picturesqueness when the trees of the virgin forest cast their shadows on the newly risen roof there was no forecasting provision for winter the nearest green tree was cut and hauled full length to the door 
and with it the nearest dry one was cut to match the span of the wide fireplace and when these were gone another raid was made upon the woods and so from hand to mouth the fire was fed it was not uncommon to draw the huge backlogs on to the hearth with a horse and sometimes a yoke of oxen was so employed think of a door wide enough for this half of the side of a house to barricade against the savage indians and savage coal it was the next remove from a campfire there was further likeness to it in the tales that were told beside it of hunting and pioneer hardships of wild beast and indian forays while the eager listeners drew to a closer circle on the hearth and the awed children cast covert scared backward glances at the crouching and leaping shadows that thronged on the walls and the great samp kettle bubbled and seethed on its trammel and the forgotten johnny cake scorched on its tilted board as conveniently near the shed as possible the pile of sled-length wood is stretching itself slowly a huge vertebrae every day or two gaining in length a joint of various woods with great trunks at the bottom then smaller ones gradually growing less to the topping out of saplings and branches here is a sugar maple three feet through at the butt with the scars of many tappings showing on its rough bark the oldest of them may have been made by indians who knows what was their method of tapping here is the mark of the gouge with which early settlers drew the blood of the tree a fashion learned likely enough from the aboriginal sugar-makers whose narrow stone gouges were as passable tools for the purpose as any they had for another these more distinct marks show where the auger of later years made its wounds the old tree has distilled its sweets for two races and many generations of men first into the bark buckets of wabanakis then into the ruder troughs of yankee pioneers then into the more convenient wide-bottomed wooden sap tubs and at last when the march of improvement has spoiled the wilderness of the woods with trim-built sugar-houses and patent evaporators the sap drips with resounding metallic tinkle into pails of shining tin now the old maple has come to perform its last office of warming and cooking the food for a generation that was unborn when it was yet a lusty tree beside it lies a great wild cherry tree that somehow escaped the cabinet-maker when there was one in every town and cherry wood was in fashion its fruit mollified the harshness of new england rum of many an old-time raising and husking next is a yellow birch with a shaggy mane of rustling bark along its whole length like a twelve-foot piece of the sea serpent drifted ashore and hauled inland then a white birch no longer white but gray with a coating of moss and black with belts of old peelings made for the patching of canoes and roofing of shanties with these lies a black birch whose once smooth bark age has scaled and furrowed and robbed of all its tenderness and most of its pungent aromatic flavor some of it yet lingers in the younger topmost twigs which the hired man brings home to the little folks who fall to gnawing them like a colony of beavers by it is an elm whose hollow trunk was the home of raccoons when it stood on its buttressed stump in the swamp 
Nearby is a beach, its smooth bark wrinkled where branches bent away from it, and blotched with spots of white and patches of black and gray lichen. It is marked with innumerable fine scratches, the track of the generations of squirrels that have made it their highway, and among these the wider apart and parallel nail marks of a raccoon, and also the drilling of woodpeckers. Here, too, are traces of man's visitation. For distorted with the growth of years are initials and a heart and dart that symbolize the tender passion of someone of the past who wandered lovesick in the shadow of the woods how long ago did death's inevitable dart pierce his heart here he wrote a little of his life's history and now his name and that of his mistress are so completely forgotten one cannot guess them by their first letters inscribed in the yesterday of the forest years. Above these logs, rolled up on skids or sled stakes, are smaller yet goodly bodies of white ash, full of oars for the water and rails for the land, and of black ash, as full of barrel hoops and basket splints, the ridged and hoary bark shagged with patches of dark moss, and a pine too knotty for sawing with old turpentine boxes gashing its lower part, the dry resin in them half overgrown, but odorous still, and oaks that have borne their last acorns, and a sharded hickory. They'll never furnish another nut for boy or squirrel. But now, and only this once, flail handles, swingles, and oxbows, and helves for axes to hew down its brethren, and wood to warm its destroyers, and smoke and fry ham for them, in a basswood that will give the wild bees no more blossoms in july hollow-hearted and unfit for slayer toboggan wood straight rifted and so white that a chip of it will hardly show in the snow but as unprofitable food for fires as the poplars beside it which in the yellow green of youth or the furrowed gray of age have shivered their last still higher in the woodpile are white birches yet in the smooth skin of their prime, which is fit to be fashioned into drinking cups and berry baskets, or to furnish a page for my lady's album. Here are hard hacks, some with grain winding like the grooves of a rifle. This is the timber the Indians made their bows of, and which now serves the same purpose for the young savages whom we have always with us. There are sinewy blue beeches, slowly growing up from ox goads and the beech seals of ethan allen's green mountain boys to the girth of a man's thigh a size at which they mostly stop growing a smaller trunk like yet unlike them sets folks to guessing what kind of wood it is he will hit the mark who fires at random the names shadblow serviceberry or amelinkir if the axe had been merciful in early May its branches would have been as white with blossoms as if the last April snow still clung to them. Tossed on a top of all is a jumbled thatch of small stuff. Saplings improvidently cut, short-lived striped maple and dogwood, the slender topmost length of great trees, once the perches of hawks and crows, and such large branches as were not too crooked to lie still on the sled. The snow fleas, harbingers and attendants of thaws, are making the snow in the woods gray with their restless myriads. 
when the sled makes its last trip across the slushy fields which are fast turning from white to dun under the march winds and showers and sunshine the completed woodpile bask in the growing warmth as responsive to the touch of spring as if every trunk yet upheld its branches in the forest the buds swell on every chance spared twig and sap starts from the severed ducts from the pine drip slowly lengthening stalactites of amber from the hickory thick beads of honeydew and from the maples a flow of sweet that calls the bees from their hives across the melting drifts their busy hum makes an island of summer sound in the midst of the silent ebbing tide of winter as the days grow warmer the woodpile invites idlers as well as busy bees and woodcutters the big logs are comfortable seats to lounge on while whittling a pine chip and breathing the mingled odors of the many woods freshly cut and the indescribable woodsy smell brought home in the bark and moss and listening to the hum of the bees and harsher music of the saws and axe the sharp quick swish of the whipsaw the longer drawn and deeper ring of the crosscut and the regular beat of the axe fiddle bass viol and drum each with its own time but all somehow in tune the parts stop a little when the fiddler saws off his string the two drawers of the long bass viol bow sever theirs and the drummer splits his drum but each is soon outfitted again and the funeral march of the woodpile goes on here is the most delightful of places for those busy idlers the children for it is full of pioneers and hunters cabins robbers caves and bears dens and of treasure of moss and gum and birch and of punk the tinder of the indians and our forefathers now gone out of use except for some conservative canuck to light his pipe or for boys to touch off their small ordnance it is a pretty sight to watch the hatches and titmice searching the grooves of the bark for their slender fare or a woodpecker chopping his best for a living with his sharp pointed axe all having followed their rightful possessions from the woods taking perhaps the track of the sled it is wonderful to hear the auger of the pine borer now thawed into life crunching its unseen way through the wood then there is always the chance of the axe unlocking the stores of deer mice quarts of beech nuts with all the shells neatly peeled off and what if it should happen to open a wild beehive full of honey if the man comes who made the round of the barns in the fall and early winter with his threshing machine having exchanged it for a sawing machine he makes short work of our woodpile a day or two of stumbling clatter of the horses in their treadmill and the buzzing and screeching of the whirling saw gnaws it into a heap of blocks our lounging place and the children's wooden playground have gone and all the picturesqueness and woodsiness have disappeared as completely as when splitting has made only firewood of the pile it will give warmth and comfort from the stove but in that black sepulchre all its beauty is swallowed out of sight forever if it can go to a generous fireplace it is beautified again in the glowing and fading embers that paint innumerable shifting pictures while the leaping flames sing the old song of the wind in the branches
End of chapter 49 A New England Woodpile